So living in Brooklyn, uh, if you drive around a little bit and you tune to a station, sometimes you hit kind of like a weird broadcast because usually everything on the radio is is run by some conglomerate playing top 40. But the nice thing about driving around Brooklyn, um, especially around East Flatbush, is you'll hit a station that's like in Haitian Creole playing lots of music you wouldn't hear on Top 40. And I think these are pirate radio stations, right, Bish? Yeah. I mean, this is one of the few places in the country where you can really like see on the dial this diversity of a place. It kind of feels like people like making something for their community, right? Like, which is something that like iHeartRadio does not do. Right, exactly. Broadly speaking, programming in places like New York is dominated by stations that really only do music and entertainment coverage. They're they're there for the masses, but they overlook usually the smaller communities. And that sort of goes against, at least in my opinion, what the radio was initially intended to do, which is broadcast democratically to the people in a community. So we think this is pretty cool. Like it is it's, cool. It's, it's uniquely cool. It's uniquely, uh, maybe not uniquely Brooklyn, but it's, it's something for the diaspora. And now it's under attack. Yes. There is a bill that has been thrown around Congress for the last couple of years called the Preventing Illegal Radio Abuse Through Enforcement Act, which comes out to PIRATE. So it is called the Pirate Act because it's aimed at radio pirates. That's an acronym. It is an acronym. Maybe it's a backronym. I don't know. But anyway, the Pirate Act is a piece of regulation. It essentially amends the Federal Communications Act of 1934, which established the FCC and established the first regulation for radio in this country. And the Pirate Act, if passed, it will increase the penalties on radio pirates, I think, up to a max of like $2 million. $2 million? Yeah, for broadcasters. People, you know, people, again, who are usually part of a diaspora and usually are just, you know, people who like want to help their communities out. It also would force the FCC to conduct biannual sweeps to identify pirate radio stations um, and then put all of those names in a database. Oh, I see. So now the FCC will actually be held kind of accountable for checking in on pirate radio stations. Exactly. So how does the pirate community feel about this? I mean, come on, man. They don't feel good. (laughs) There is no value to this legislation whatsoever. That was John Anderson, a former pirate and scholar on the subject. One of the three people in the pirate community I talked to for this. I also talked to David Gorin, who is the creator of the Pirate Radio Sound Map. And I'm a radio producer and an audio archivist. And Joan Martinez, who is a former pirate radio DJ. Since I was a kid, I've always been interested in television and radio. David Gorin created the Brooklyn Pirate Radio Sound Map as an online interactive site to archive the sounds of the underground community in Brooklyn that still operates in the digital age. There is a lot of pirate activity all over New York City, and it is... 99% of this sort of immigrant-focused, immigrant community radio. On the site, you can click around a map of Brooklyn and play archived audio of radio broadcasts from selected areas. It's a very cool digital representation of how pirate radio works, where it is, what it looks like, what it sounds like. And anybody can drop in and sort of, you know, hear what a recent broadcast might have been. On an average night of the stations on the air, I've heard as many as 37. About a third of them are broadcasting in Haitian Creole to the Haitian community that lives in East Flatbush. You know, that's a big chunk. You know, after that, there's probably a lot of Jamaican stations. There's a number of stations that target uh, Grenadian audiences and Soka stations, which have a mix of cultures like Trinidadian and Barbadian. Bye-bye. 
Joan Martinez was a pirate DJ in Brooklyn, and she's worked at some of those stations that cater to the Haitian community. Born and raised in Brooklyn, New York. Lived here my whole life. My parents are of, of Haitian descent. I'm first-generation American in my family. I grew up in East Flatbush. At the time, it was very um, rich with um, Haitian-Americans, lots of West Indians. So I kind of grew up knowing that. Joan has been working in underground radio for almost 10 years. Back in 2010, there were a few that were just like popping up. So my mom was listening to them and she would call them up and she they would have like these really long conversations and everything. She basically became part of the show and they invited her to be a DJ. And she was like, no, I don't want to. However, I do have a daughter that did study broadcasting in college. And they, all of a sudden they were like, we want her. I was basically like a little like a little anchor person. I would come on like every half an hour and just talk about the news of what's happening in the Caribbean, what's happening in New York. So radio is especially important to the Haitian community. Yes. In Haiti, there are almost 400 radio and television stations and only half broadcast legally. I interviewed the head of Haitian studies at CUNY, and he told me about the transistor revolution, that during the Davalier regime, people, instead of, as he put it, buying tobacco, they would save up their money for batteries for the radio so they could tune in to radio from off the island. Because on the island of Hispaniola, there was only one independent uh, radio station, and eventually the owner of that was assassinated. So getting into independent information was very important to them. It's a very oral culture. And also, since life in Haiti is still turbulent at times, the people who live here really want to keep tabs on what's going on back home. So a lot of the Haitian stations, if something is going on in Haiti, the owner or operator of the station will get on the air with someone in Haiti and talk to them live. And this is not a small community. According to the Migration Policy Institute, Brooklyn is home to over 90,000 Haitian Americans, the third highest concentration in the United States. These are people that they've just come here. They're new immigrants. They're just trying to find that connection to back home. Maybe they're not as technologically advanced as of yet. They're not as tech savvy. The radio, like one of my friends says, is just something you turn on and then you're done. It's a very passive medium. These stations have important programming. Among many other things, they give advice about America's immigration situation, and they help people connect with attorneys. Some of the best moments I've seen in, like, the underground radio is just how there are members of, like, local agencies that'll tell you these people will be struggling with rent and, you know, bad landlords, how to deal with that, who to go to. When I used to do my shows and I would tell you, like, where to go in case of an emergency, what to do if you're assaulted, you know, how to listen to your kids when you're talking to them about school or dating or relationships. You need that voice. You need that person. And there are no licensed radio stations in these areas that are doing this kind of service. When was the last time you heard a Haitian artist on, say, WBLS? I mean, I don't, I don't know. Besides the West Indian, when it's like that block, that late night block of um, you listen to soca and reggae on WBLS or Hot 97 or um, 105.1. It's like, okay, we have this whole programming day for you, and then this little tiny spot here is for you guys. If the Pirate Act is passed and becomes a law, radio stations that do serve these communities will have a harder time continuing to operate. So wait, who is actually for the Pirate Act? 
exactly the people you'd expect. There are hundreds of illegal stations transmitting from balconies and rooftops of residential and commercial buildings across New York City and northern New Jersey. That's David Donovan. He is the president of the New York State Broadcasters Association. He's talking to Congress's Commerce Committee to explain the potential harm pirate radio has on society. There are more illegal stations in the New York metropolitan area than there are legally licensed stations. And the problem is growing. It is spreading to Boston, it is spreading to Connecticut, and it is spreading throughout the United States. In the statement, Donovan details several reasons why unlicensed radio broadcasting has become a, quote, nationwide issue, and that the Pirate Act needs to be enacted. So he used my fundraising pitch for the Brooklyn Pirate Radio Sound Map, which is online. He found it, and he uses it in his testimony to say, well, I don't know who this guy is, you know, I don't think he's a pirate, but this shows you how ubiquitous they are. Which, of course, was a little weird. So here's Donovan's argument against radio piracy. Besides ignoring federal and state laws and FCC broadcasting rules, he claims pirate radio undermines the U.S. emergency alert system. Their interference prevents listeners from hearing life-saving information broadcast by legal stations. He also says it threatens public health by exposing citizens to radio frequency radiation from antennas on rooftops. And as a result, there are folks who are receiving above government standard levels of RF radiation that can range from 20 to 80 feet and interferes with other regulated communications. Pirates also interfere with airport communications on frequencies assigned to the FAA, creating an extremely dangerous situation. Overall, the New York State Broadcasters Association says that these unlicensed broadcasts are not in the public interest. They ignore all consumer protections laws, sponsorship ID laws, indecency, public file requirements, alcohol and tobacco advertising laws. The Pirate Act solves this problem. It gives the FCC additional tools. Unsurprisingly, other radio organizations think this too. James Winston, the president of the National Association of Black-Owned Broadcasters, put out a statement saying, quote, Illegal pirate radio stations have for many years exploited African-American and other minority communities across the country. We reached out to him for a comment, and he did not reply. So earlier, Joan Martinez said that, you know, pirate radio existed to help the Haitian diaspora in Brooklyn. And here James Winston is is kind of saying the opposite, right? He's saying pirate radio stations are exploiting African-Americans. Is that legit? Well, John Anderson, our expert I mentioned earlier, actually told me about that. Uh, no, <laughs> no, uh, that's just a whole stack of bullshit uh, lined up there. And it references a lot of the talking points that lobbying organizations have used in order to push more draconian enforcement activity through Congress and to get the FCC to pay more attention to it, et cetera, et cetera. OK, I want to start with this radiation thing. That sounds like a little scary. It does, because radiation is a scary word. When you think about it, it doesn't really hold water. Because most pirate radio stations are operating with an amount of energy that's much less than a licensed full power station would. And the notion of FM radio frequency energy causing things like cancer or whatever has never been scientifically proven. Okay, well, what about the thing like people are listening to pirate radio stations instead of licensed stations trying to make money? Yeah, that one's an interesting one because it actually goes back to media companies consolidating. Like radio is run by a few large organizations, mostly across the country, and they've made it sort of impossible for anyone to start a station or get a license. Like it's just super expensive. The price that it takes to actually engage with licensed broadcasting, either through buying a radio station or leasing time on a radio station, is so cost prohibitive now that your mom and pop small business person who wants to break into broadcasting can't afford it anyway. Back to that plane thing. Like, can pirate radio stations actually interfere with, like, aircraft communication? Well, 
John looked into it. I actually put in a Freedom of Information Act request with the FCC, and I was specifically asked the FCC, can I get all of the data you have on interference complaints involving aircraft navigation and communication frequencies for like the last 20 years? They could only give me data from 2012 to the present, but I got it. And basically what it shows is that of all the sources that can interfere with aircraft navigation and communication radio systems, pirate radio is like number 13 on the list. In fact, number two on the list of the 500 and something complaints, the federal government actually, their own radio systems interfere more with aircraft navigation and communication than pirate radio does. So these all sound like lightly made-up excuses just to get pirate radio stations off the air. Yeah, and also John doesn't think the features of the bill, like the increase of fines, would even do much to combat the pirate radio problem. There is an element in the FCC statutes that says if someone has been fined by the agency and they can show with like three years worth of tax returns that they're poor and can't pay the fine, the FCC is statutorily mandated to reduce or eliminate the fine. So there have been cases, say in Miami, where a station gets dinged by the FCC for anywhere from, you know, ten dollars to $25,000. And after ignoring the FCC's enforcement protocol for several steps, the pirate writes back and says, look, I'm broke. And the FCC knocks that fine down to like 500 bucks. And then the pirate only has to run a house party and charge $10 admission and get 50 people to show up and they can pay the fine and the entire enforcement process resets itself. So what is the point of increasing the amount of fines that you can offer from several hundred thousand dollars to $2 million? And what is the point of skipping a warning step when you do not have the ability uh, in resources and people power in the Federal Communications Commission to enforce the law as it currently exists? So it seems like the Pirate Act fundamentally misunderstands why these stations exist in the first place. Exactly. Like, no one wants to be an illegal station, right? Like, they just there's just no way to do it otherwise. Right, exactly. And Joan Martinez believes that if the government is going to get involved in community radio, lawmakers and lobbyists should think about it totally differently. If you're head of the broadcasters, are you helping these underground people obtain licenses? Are you helping them? Like, how are you helping them? Like, you know how hard it is to get a license in New York? You know how they say that there are no licenses available in New York. Mm -hmm. You just can't wag your finger at the broadcasters and say, you are doing wrong by your community. Are you helping your community, though? Are you making it easier? And it sounds like you're not. So this all brings into question the future of pirate radio. Will they be able to sustain themselves under the Pirate Act if it's passed? Or is, like, the Internet the way to go? Once we get to a point with broadband audio streaming where the price point to do it online is equivalent to the price point of building your own FM transmitter, then we can talk about whether or not pirate radio is technologically irrelevant. But until that happens, there will still be a need and you find pirate radio in places where other communications infrastructure doesn't exist or is woefully underdeveloped. But in the meantime, there's something else that might kill pirate radio before any laws can. What I think is going to happen is that it will be gentrification that takes the stations off the air. There's a pirate station on a main thoroughfare in Flatbush, and you can see the antenna. And they're on very sporadically, but it's a church station. But three blocks away, there's now like a 25-story apartment building, like a huge glass building. And I think just with new people, the neighborhoods will, you know, get watered down and they'll move elsewhere. So I think it could take another 10 to 15 to 20 years. But I think I think it's the neighborhoods changing and the diversity of New York becoming less so that will spell the end of these stations. 
And the future of the medium itself is generational. I'm a millennial, and for most of us, radio isn't part of our daily lives. That goes double for Zoomers. Pirate radio might just get killed by what gets most of us, old age. I'm not sure what there is to do about that, but I do know this. Pirate radio is resilient. It's local. It's fundamentally about the people around you. And communities will always have a need to know what's going on in them, whether that's over the airwaves or online. And I think we lose something when we don't have access to media distribution technologies that we don't have to sign a terms of service agreement to be a part of, where we can actually put out content that is won't be censored by a private hand like Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. And so I think for as long as that need for media discourse and access to some sort of public communication facilities and infrastructure exists, there will always be a need for pirate radio in some way, shape, or form. Right now, the Pirate Act has passed the House and is with the Senate. And while no action has been taken yet, that doesn't mean it's not a threat. This episode of Pirate Radio was made by Bijan Steven, Andrew Marino, and Kevin Nguyen. Special thanks to John, David, and Joan for letting us talk to them. And shout out to Neil Patel for, in the spirit of Pirate Radio, letting us hijack Vergecast for an episode. 